Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. All right. Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome now to our preaching service, uh, which, of course, is filled with worship, both music and from our hearts as we study God's Word. Uh, My name is Nate. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm very glad you've joined us this morning, and we're brave. I think more weather's coming, so... This is, uh, we've got to be tough here and learn again what it is to, to live in Colorado and keep up the myth that it's actually super cold and snowy and see if we can stem the tide a little. Um, in our teaching service, we'll be continuing in the life of Joseph, our series, and our scripture passage is going to be in Genesis chapter 42, so you can kind of turn there in your Bibles. Uh, you will have an outline uh, in your bulletin which should be in your, on your chair or nearby there. And uh, while you turn to the passage, let me just mention two things. First of all, Daylight Savings Time ends next Sunday, November 1st. So your clocks will fall back one hour. So take note of that. And then also, just to let you know, um, we as your elders, as your shepherds, your pastors, we, we love being in your lives, and I hope you know that, but we particularly love as we pray for you, which we pray every week uh, for the families, um, not just the special needs that come up, but for all of you um, on a rotating basis, and we just love to hear from you. So if there's a, a praise you want to share, we'd love, we don't just need to pray for the hard things. Uh, if there is uh, something tough going on in your life, and you think, should I ask for prayer? I was told whenever you ask yourself the question, the answer is always yes. So send that to us. We would love to pray for you. Uh, if you're new here, if we don't really know you yet, uh, and you're willing to be known and be cared for, we would love to meet with you. So shoot an email to us, uh, pastors uh, at orchardbible.org, or for either of these things, you can slip a card uh, back in the back of the auditorium, and that will make its way to us as well. Um, So that's all I have for you in the way of announcements. I would ask uh, that for our reading of today's scripture, you would please stand if you're able. Good morning. Today's uh, scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for working your plan out through your people, through Israel, through Jacob, through his sons, and through Joseph. Lord, open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts this morning as we come before you and um, just speak to us, Lord. We want to hear from you, and we want our lives to be more conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. We lift these requests before you now. Amen. You may be seated. All right, well, this morning we're rejoining our study of the life of Joseph here in chapter 42 of Genesis, Um, you know, with the exception of chapter 38, which was about Judah. Until now, the story has really focused on Joseph. Think back to chapter 37, uh, where Joseph uh, was... uh, shared his dreams and where he was thrown into the pit, sold to the slave traders, the Midianites who took him to Egypt. Chapter 39, he was in Potiphar's house, obviously suffered at the hands of Potiphar's wife. Chapter 40, he was in the dungeon. He ministered to the cupbearer and to the uh, chief uh, baker and, and was forgotten. And then in chapter 41, he was remembered. He interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and he was lifted as it were, to the highest position in all of Egypt, uh, short of the Pharaoh himself. But in chapter 42, the story brings us back to Canaan, where Joseph is from and where his family still lives. And we're going to see what's been going on with Joseph's family and how God intends to reconcile his people and to reconcile the people of Jacob even. This entire story... All of what we're studying, studying the life of Joseph, but this entire story is all about God sovereignly working through people to accomplish his ends. There's many things that we can learn and we are learning along the way as we study the life of Joseph. But the number one thing that you must know from this story is that God is sovereignly at work accomplishing his ends. Joseph... Excuse me, Joseph's father, Jacob, who we'll look at first as passive in some ways, stubborn in others, but in every way he's always negative. But God will still use him. Joseph has every earthly reason to seek revenge and to make his brothers pay for what they did to him. Instead, we see a man who has long ago yielded that anger and hurt to God. And as a result, is a vessel for blessing to his brothers. And we'll see Joseph's brothers, how their hardened hearts are softened by a gracious God. Their their seared consciences brought back to life. But in each circumstance, God is working his plan to bring salvation to the Jews and to all the earth. So I want to look at point one now in your outline. The, uh, the aesthetic of that was killing me. All right. So let's look at point one in your outline. And at the beginning, again, of, of chapter 42, the story, as I mentioned, pivots back to Cain. And it's kind of like one of those, meanwhile, back at the ranch, you know, kind of breaks in the, in the story. And back at the ranch, things are not good. Famine has struck not just Egypt, but all of the surrounding region of Canaan, including Canaan. Jacob and his clan are in a dire situation. And so Jacob says to his son, why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. You know, in a lot of ways, this is really out of character for Jacob. Here's a guy who was very passive, very passive with his sons. His son Reuben slept with one of his concubines, and he did nothing. His two sons, Simeon and Levi, slaughtered all of the men in the town of Shechem for the rape of their their sister. And certainly justice must be served, but the response must be proportional. And theirs was completely disproportionate. And yet Jacob did nothing except complain. Judah mistreated Tamar, and where was Jacob to be found? He was silent and passive. Sadly, for such a great man, he was a very passive father. So when he sits up and calls his sons to action, we realize that their situation must, in fact, be very dire. In fact, he says, go and get food so that we may live and not die. It was a matter of life and death. Listen, no one ever held Jacob up, held him aloft as a paragon of parental wisdom, okay? But that said, God uses Jacob. He uses Jacob's tongue in particular and his tongue lashing with his sons to work out his plan. This is how God brought his people to Egypt. The whole story, as I've said already, is the one of the sovereign hand of God working his will through the most peculiar and unusual of means. In this case, he moves a passive leader to act. And I would just say that God's Economy is not our economy. Let's go to point two in our outlines. Let me just read for you the verses. We'll look at verses 6 through 17. So if you have your scriptures, I would invite you to follow along with me. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no. It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants, our 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph's brothers arrive in Egypt, and they find themselves bowing before the ruler of Egypt, begging for the opportunity to buy food. Now, they didn't recognize him. It was roughly 20 years since they had dropped him in the pit and then sold him to slave traders. He was about 30 when Pharaoh appointed him as prime minister, 
And then he worked for seven years saving up grain in preparation for the famine. But it wasn't just the passage of time that clouded their vision. Joseph would have been clean-shaven, wearing linen garments in keeping with the ruling class, and possibly a headdress even, to distinguish himself as the most senior governing official in all of Egypt. He spoke Egyptian, using an interpreter to translate to Hebrew. He even had an Egyptian name. He did not look like, speak like, or sound like their brother, and so they didn't recognize him. Most importantly, they thought he was dead, or if he was alive, enslaved somewhere in Egypt. He was most definitely not the prime minister of Egypt. But Joseph, on the other hand, immediately recognized his brothers. Twenty years had passed, but his brothers' voices, their faces, even their mannerisms were immediately recognizable to him. Can you imagine being in Joseph's shoes? What a flood of emotion. Anger, grief, joy. Is he relieved that they are alive, but at the same time confronted with the bitter memory of their betrayal? We don't know exactly what he was feeling or thinking, but this is one thing we do know. We know how he chose to act. He restrained himself and did not reveal himself. But, but why? Why not reveal yourself immediately? Was it revenge? Was he plotting revenge against his brothers? Well, we know the story. We know that that's not true. We know that even if maybe he was plotting it, that that's even unlikely. This would be inconsistent with his character. He had the opportunity, after two years of being forgotten in a dungeon, to get his revenge on the cupbearer, but he did not do that. This is not in his character. It's not what he was doing. I think verse 15 makes it very clear. Joseph was testing them. Joseph was testing them. John Calvin cites two reasons to discern the well-being he cites two reasons. The first is to discern the well-being of his full brother. See, all these other guys are his half-brothers. But Benjamin was his full brother. And perhaps these brothers had mistreated Benjamin as they had him. So he wanted to know about Benjamin. And the second reason, and I think the more important reason, he wanted to see if they were repentant for what they had done to him, for torturing him, for selling him into slavery. And I think, as I said, that second point is critical. It might seem wrong, it might seem wrong to you at first glance that Joseph tested his brothers to play a charade and to not reveal himself. But I think that's kind of a naive and romantic way to think about or to approach reconciliation. Their sin and betrayal wasn't minor. His brothers wanted him dead. And so reconciliation with his brothers would require time and testing and ultimately real proof of repentance. Let's go to verse 9 now. It tells us that, that Joseph remembered his dreams. I think it's interesting what that verse doesn't say. What doesn't it say? It doesn't say he remembered how badly they betrayed him. Instead, God... God brought to Joseph's mind, not his betrayal, but the divinely inspired dreams 
from chapter 37, the 11 sheaves of grain bowing down to his sheave of grain, the 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. But how long do you think it had been since he thought about those dreams? I mean, so much had happened to him in the last 20 years. And now he was the prime minister of Egypt, no doubt a very busy person. He was married, he had two boys. It's a busy life. He doesn't have time to think about his dreams. But seeing his brothers brings his dreams to mind. And at this moment, he recognizes. He recognizes what is happening. And everything crystallizes for him. The dreams that God gave him 20 years ago are now coming to pass. But something was missing, right? There were 10 brothers here, but there were supposed to be 11 sheaves. And what about the 11 stars and the sun and the moon? Again, there were only 10 stars before him. Both dreams weren't fulfilled. How could he determine whether Jacob and Benjamin were still alive? If he revealed his identity, could his brothers be trusted? Could he trust them to really tell him the truth? From this uncertainty about his family and about his brothers, he adopts his interrogation of his brothers. He accuses them of spying, and I think that's kind of a weird accusation. I mean, how often when you want to spy on someplace do you come with a caravan of 10 people and a bunch of donkeys and camels? That's not a real good way to spy on the land. If you want to spy on the land, you come as a maybe one or two. You're innocuous. You blend in. One commentator speculated that he was repeating, that Joseph was repeating the same accusations his brothers brought against him. Remember, he gave a bad report about his brothers to Jacob. And Jacob said, I want you to go. I hear they're up by Shechem. I want you to go check in on them and then report back to me. I don't think it's unreasonable to think that when he came and the brothers saw him, here comes that spy again to spy on us and report back to Father. In any case, what follows is all a part of Joseph's plan to test his brothers and to see if God was ready to fulfill his dreams, Joseph's dreams. And this is important. He tested them not out of revenge, not out of spite. Despite how badly they had wronged him, his heart wasn't about taking revenge. So Joseph develops a plan to bring Benjamin to him. He would allow one brother to go back to Canaan to retrieve Benjamin and bring him back to make the brothers know his seriousness. To make his brothers know his seriousness, rather, they are thrown into prison for, for three days. And before we move on to point three, I just want to consider the brothers more closely. I want to camp out for a moment on Joseph's reaction to his brothers. Joseph was deeply wronged by his brothers, as as we have said. The pain and sting of betrayal by your own flesh and blood is not easily forgotten or forgiven. It's one thing to be wronged by a stranger or a co-worker or a neighbor or even somebody at church. It's even worse to be betrayed by your own flesh and blood. But Joseph chose to forgive. And God also gave him the mercy of forgetting. Recall that Joseph named his first son Manasseh. And in Hebrew, Manasseh sounds like making to forget. God made him forget the bitterness 
in unjust treatment of his brother. Certainly he never forgot completely what happened to him. But the anger and the bitterness, God gave him relief from that. You see, Joseph was so fixated, so in tune with God, that revenge was not his motive. It may have crossed his mind. After all, he was not a perfect man. But if revenge came to mind, he pushed it aside and refocused his mind and heart on God. To be in this place, he had done the very, very hard work of forgiveness. Well before they showed up, he chose to forgive even when his heart may not have felt like it. And I just want to tell you, choosing to forgive is not easy. It seems like it ought. It seems like it ought to be, but it's not. When someone wrongs us, Somebody has to pay the debt. There's a debt incurred, and someone must pay that debt. And we can choose to make the other person who wronged us pay the debt. We can hold a grudge. We can speak poorly of them to others. Or we can pay the debt. We can pay the price, and we can forgive. We can take on ourselves what they owe us. Of course, this is the heart of the gospel. We have wronged God a thousand times over. But instead of making us pay, God paid for it himself through Jesus' death. At the cross, all that you owed God for all the wrongs that you've ever done to him, Jesus paid for those. And for that same reason, we must choose to forgive others even when our hearts feel otherwise. I just want to go off script for a moment and point something out to you. If you look in your bulletin this morning, we have a little word from the pastors. And it's actually a word from Jesus himself. I had nothing to do with this going in the bulletin this morning. If there's nothing else that you hear this morning, I want you to hear this. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. Perhaps one of the greatest stories of choosing forgiveness is, is the experience of, that Corey Tinboom uh, relates. Of course, she's the author, author of The Hiding Place. And after she was released from concent, um, after she was released from concentration camp, she found herself in a very similar situation to Joseph. Let me just read what she wrote or what she said. It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat, overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp, came, concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, rips, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of her skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, concentration camp where we were sent. 
Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, and the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder. And as I did, uh, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let's move to point three in your outlines and see how the brothers respond. After the three days, Joseph has a change of heart. Now he'll let the nine brothers go back to retrieve Benjamin. Only one must stay with him in prison while the others go back. And let's just pick up with the scriptures, starting in verse 21. And this is the brothers speaking to one another. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them, and he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give their provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Look at verse 21. The brothers speaking to each other, this is what they say. In truth... We are guilty concerning our brother. Finally, finally, they remember the evil that they did to Joseph. Chapter 37 doesn't tell us 
how Joseph reacted to his brother's betrayal. But here we learn that he begged his brothers to change their minds, to give him mercy, and to let him go. Twenty years had passed, and they had done their best to quiet their conscience, their evil conscience, their dirty conscience. But in the end, God would not let them forget. You know, the conscience, it is a funny thing, is it not? Did you know that there's a federal conscience fund? Let me just share what Wikipedia relates about the federal conscience fund. It is used for voluntary contributions from people who have stolen from or defrauded the U.S. government. The fund was created in 1811 and received $5 during its first year and over $5.7 million during its first 175 years. Donations given to the Conscience Fund vary in size and reason. A nine-cent donation was made by a person who had reused a three-cent postage stamp. Another person sent 40000 in several installments for 8000 he had previously taken. The sincerity of some donors' repentance can be uncertain, as demonstrated by a received letter reading, Dear Internal Revenue Service, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, find a cashier's check for $1,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. Our conscience does the same thing for our spiritual lives. It cries out against us when we do wrong. In the immediate aftermath of betraying Joseph, surely these men felt guilty, but they denied their guilt and put the blame on Joseph. I am imagining every time they thought, oh, I shouldn't have done that, they think to themselves, well, he's the one who started it. He came and spied on us. He reported to Father. He got what he deserved. He needed to learn that lesson. The family is better without him. Father needed to be rid of him so that he could remember us. And on and on and on. They pushed away their guilt and denied it, and in the process, their consciences were seared. And when you sear a steak on the grill, you expose it to very high heat for a very short time, maybe 30 seconds on each side, and searing seals the outside of the meat so that the all of the juices stay on the inside. Effectively, you burn the steak to keep it juicy. But what's good for the steak is not good for the conscience. A seared conscience is one that has been burned up to where it has been withered and dried. A seared conscience is callous. It doesn't sig- signals that, that what you're doing is wrong. These brothers were spiritually dead, but God's grace began to shine in their lives. Their consciences begin to speak to them again. They say, in truth, we are guilty. When they say in truth, it's as if to say we've been pretending like we aren't guilty. But all along, we've known the truth. And as they contemplate all that is happening, that one of their brothers must be left behind in Egypt, they are reminded of how they left Joseph behind, how they ignored his pleas for mercy. And his distressed cries, and they admit their guilt. Brothers and sisters, this is God's grace to these brothers. 
And it is part of his plan to bring the tribe of Jacob back together to fulfill the promises God made to their great-grandfather, Abraham. The conscience can be quieted. It can be denied. Tim Keller says the fuel of the human heart is denial. Just like your car runs on gasoline, the human heart runs on denial. Why? Because in our flesh, we believe that admitting guilt is weakness. If we admit weakness, we diminish who we are in God's eyes, in the eyes of others, and even in our own eyes. But as I said before earlier, God's economy is not our economy. In his kingdom, the way up is down. Strength is not denying guilt and faking innocence. It's owning your guilt. And most importantly, confessing it to God and trusting that Jesus has paid the price for your guilt. We look at verse 24. Remember that Joseph pretended not to understand Hebrew. He used an interpreter between himself and the brothers. But as he listened to them, begin to come to terms with what they did to him. He could no longer hold it in. Why did he weep? Surely some of his weeping was for sorrow over their sin against God and against him. And some was finally a release of joy at seeing his brothers again. But perhaps most of all, he was relieved to see the turning of their hearts toward God. They were beginning the journey of repentance. Joseph knew that there could be no restoration between he and his brothers if they didn't repent. There would be no joyous reunion with his father and with Benjamin if they didn't repent. But they are beginning to repent. The relief that Joseph felt flew out of his eyes as tears. But Joseph wasn't done testing the brothers. Remember, he was sold for 20 shekels of silver. That's the equivalent of $160. Split 10 ways, each guy got 16 bucks. Joseph might have been thinking of how they callously sold him for such a meager sum of money. How could he test them to see if their repentance was real? Would they just leave Simeon in captivity in Egypt until death? Or would they return? So Joseph devised another test. He would put their money back in their grain sacks. And as I said a moment ago, Joseph wasn't done working on the brothers, and by extension, God wasn't done working on them either. And so they set out on their journey back to Canaan without Simeon. On the very first night, they make a discovery, which brings about the second of God's graces to them. In verses 26 through 28, we read that upon stopping for the night, one of the brothers goes to get food for his donkey. And when he does, he discovers that money has been placed back in his sack. Whichever brother it is reports to the rest. Upon hearing the news, the Bible says that their hearts failed them. But I think what they say is much more important. Any normal human being in that same position would be dreadfully afraid. But hear what they say. What is this that God has done to us? James Boyce suggests that although it is posed as a question, they are really making a statement. God has done this to us. He sees us. He has not forgotten our sin. He is here intervening in our lives. 
This is the first time we see the brothers speak of God. Joseph spoke of God often, even in his dialogue with the brothers. He said, I fear God. But the brothers are seemingly very pagan. Now, perhaps they were cultural believers in a sense of they would say the right things and do the right things. But God was not in their lives in any form or fashion until now. This is the second of God's graces to them. The first was the guilt that they felt over their sin with Joseph. The second grace is the fear that they feel feel from the Lord even now. But it isn't just any fear, it is godly fear. As Proverbs 1.7 says, and as there are many other references in Proverbs that say this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and in some places the beginning of wisdom. And that is true. You come to understand who God is and His holiness, the more you understand who you are before Him. And that is the beginning of living a wise life. And that's where these men are. Let me read verses 29 through 35 with you real quick here. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us. He took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take your grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. So the brothers, they're back in Canaan and it's time to lay it all out before Jacob. Remember, They must convince him to let Benjamin go back with them to Egypt. And so as part of that, they retell the story about what happened to them. But notice, they change some important details in here. And I think it's because something else is going on in their heart. In verse 11, they told Joseph they were sons of one man. Now in verse 32, they're sons of one father. In verse 13, they say, The youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Now, in verse 32, they put Joseph first, then Benjamin, which is the proper order given their birth order. In verse 33, they say that Joseph said to leave a brother with him. No mention of the fact that Joseph wasn't nearly that nice about it. He bound Simeon before their eyes and put him in prison. Furthermore, they leave out a lot of critical information. They don't even mention the fact that they were thrown in prison for three days. They just wholesale, left it out of the story. That's not a minor detail. They say he accused them of spying only once, whereas Joseph strongly accused them of spying multiple times. And most importantly, they make no mention of finding the money in one of the bags. What's going on here? Like all of us, there's a number of things in their hearts, but I believe they're feeling grief over what they have done. They're connecting the dots from their sin against Joseph to the current state where Simeon is imprisoned. They appear to be criminals due to the money in their pouches, and now they're going to break their father's heart by delivering the news that Benjamin must go with them to Egypt. And so they soften the edges of the story. 
They remove some of the details. What were the sons of one man are now sons of one father. Joseph is acknowledged in his proper birth order. They leave out key details. They sense, ultimately, that God is working in their circumstances. And here's the thing. Now, I know that may not seem like much. It's a minor sort of detail in this story. But when God is moving in our hearts, we start by owning our sin. We start by stopping our continual denial of our sin. And we begin to grieve our sin, not because it hurts us, but because it hurts the king. So God's grace has been shown to these men, these hardened men, and their hardened hearts have been softened. They felt guilt over what they did to Joseph. They felt fear of the Lord for the very first time. And now they're grieved over what they have done. 2 Corinthians 7 and 10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. God is working in these men's hardened hearts to bring his plan to save all the people of earth to fruition. Let's move to point four. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end the way we might want it to. Let's go ahead and read the last three verses here, verses 36 through 38. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, and their, and Jacob their father said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All of this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to, you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Like I said, it, the story doesn't end the way we might want it to. I think if we were writing the story, Jacob would have responded with joy that instead of being held prisoner or even killed in Egypt, his sons were home safely. Our script would have shown him sad that Simeon was still captive in Egypt, but confident that God would carry Benjamin and the brothers safely back to Egypt to secure his release. If it was up to us, Jacob would have been thankful that they came back with enough food to feed the family during the famine. But instead, we find Jacob being Jacob. He sees none of these good things. He bereaves the loss of Joseph and bereaves the loss of Simeon as if he's dead already, even though he's just in captivity. And he assumes that Benjamin's fate will be the same, death. He is, his thinking is only negative all the time. I think Jacob would have made a fine cable news producer. <laughs> and, to, and to compound his woeful response, he says, all this has come against me. Not all this has come against us. All this has come against me. Listen. Following Jesus isn't about the power of positive thinking. 
It doesn't, being a follower of Jesus doesn't make you an eternal optimist. But it also rules out a pessimistic view of life, like Jacob. If God is for us, who can be against us? I think Tim Keller says it well. Christians should not be optimists. We know too much about sin. We should also not be pessimists, for we know the living God. Jacob despaired over what he thought was lost. In his wisdom and assessment of the situation, that was the only reasonable reaction. He wasn't able to see that God was at work, but God was at work. And despite Jacob's fearful, negative attitude, God was going to redeem him and his family through their brother and son, Joseph. As we wrap up this morning, I want to go back to the interaction between Joseph and his brothers. Isn't it amazing that God used Joseph to save his brothers? But really, it's just a picture of the gospel of Jesus. God sent him, our brother, to save us. But if we haven't confessed our sin and accepted his love for us, we are no different than, brothers, than the brothers before they confessed. God has done this to us. James Boyce, I'm going to read an extended quote from James Boyce. I think it sums this up very well. You have a brother. He is not afraid to call you brother who has never been concerned for anything in your case, but your good. And what have you done to him? You have accused him of spying out your hidden sins to destroy them. You have driven him from your life. In the person of those who have gone before you in history, you have reviled him, spit upon him, crucified him. You must come to the place where you plead guilty concerning your brother. This is hard. It is painful to make that confession. But once you confess the sin, you find that Jesus is most gracious. Indeed, he is so gracious that he has already gone to death before you, enduring the cross, so that you might be saved both for this life and for eternity. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning to us in this wonderful story of Joseph and his brothers. Lord, we ask as we move forward into this week that um, two things, Father, just as there might be people that we need to forgive that we have not forgiven, Lord, help us do the hard work of forgiveness. And help us to remember the cross where you have first forgiven us. And let us lead that. Let us... uh, into forgiveness with others, Father. And also, Lord, if there are any here with a guilty conscience this morning who know that they've never truly confessed their sins to you, I ask that you would work in their hearts this morning, this week. Don't let it go to sleep on them, Father. Move in their hearts. Draw them to you. Help them to be weak and to find their strength in your Son, Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You are dismissed.